CGM 99.1 FM programming is hosted almost exclusively by community volunteers. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are that of the host and their guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CJAM FM. For more information and resources, visit our website at cjam.ca. Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. to HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells. This first segment of our show was a post-dated one, so some of the events referred to may already have happened. In this segment of our show, Michelle Rubel and Jen Levy will be telling us a little bit about C3. So, what can you tell me about the coalition? Um, so, Jen, if you don't mind, I'll start. Um, I was, uh, I'm 59 now. At 25, I learned that I had a form of muscular dystrophy, but was unable to get a specific diagnosis. And it took me two decades to actually get that diagnosis of tapenopathy or limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2A. Um, once I learned what I had, I was very frustrated, one, that it took me that long to get a diagnosis, and two, to understand that there was really no research being done um, looking into a cure for this disease. In fact, the diagnostic was even difficult to get. Um, So I fueled that frustration um, into founding Coalition to Cure Calpain 3 primarily to drive research and also to educate the general public as well as the scientific community about this disease. And that's how it got started. So I'm curious, uh, as a patient yourself, uh, how did you keep from giving in to any myths or misperceptions? Not being able to get a diagnosis, I'd imagine, would get very frustrating past a certain point. Yeah, it did get very frustrating, and to be honest, I would sort of kind of cycle in and out of trying to see different specialists. Oftentimes, you would find that a specialist who focused on a specific type of MD thought that perhaps you had it, and then when you didn't, they really had nothing else to offer you. And there was a real um, kind of a mourning period with going through all of the testing and hoping that you're going to understand what's happening to you and then finding out that that's not the case and then kind of withdrawing from from maybe physicians and such because there was nothing to offer and just sort of going on and living my life and then 
eventually going back to see if anything new had been had been found. So I think um, kind of that in and out cycling helped me sort of stay sane and I have a really supportive family and I just went about living my life and doing things um, that mattered to me um, to just find joy in other places and try to not let the disease define me solely. So in that sense, uh, how do you reach out to the patient community these days to let them know they're not alone as they walk through this? Yeah, so when we founded C3 in 2010, I just kind of took to Facebook and um, and put out there that we were reaching people with this disease and offered up a, um, a closed private Facebook group. People were very eager to join because most people, uh, because it's such a rare disease, didn't know anyone else who had it, and we sort of created a community that way. We also did find um, other patients through um, researchers, so we connected that way, and in fact, I co-founded C3 with patients who I had met through researchers, and um, and that Facebook group has grown to over a 1,000 people now, and it still is a fantastic source. Um, for people uh, to go. Uh, obviously, also just a website talking about the work that we're doing, um, and people would donate or hold fundraisers and connect with us us that way. And when we brought Jen on board, who really knew um, how to evaluate research proposals and push forward the science, um, that created another great way to connect with people through email, through just with information about the work that we're doing. And that is uh, very uh, motivating for people to want to connect with us. So, Jen, can you tell me a little bit about your experiences since joining the organization? Sure. So I joined the organization in 2016 as the scientific director. Um, and I, I wear several hats, but I think the most important to me is um, really managing the research grant program. So I um, strategize and set research priorities, I encourage, um, you know, real scientific leaders to apply to us. Um, and then we evaluate the projects and also help guide them. So really trying to set up um, researchers for success so that we get meaningful results. We're really looking for therapeutically relevant projects. So not something that's just interesting, but interesting and either is potentially a therapeutic or gets us more clinical trial ready or um, develops tools or reagents that the field can use. So, um, so we've funded, I think, around $2 million um, in uh, research grants and uh, really brought a lot of people into the field, too. Uh, so that's, that's the research grant program. I do also um, run the... Uh, LGMD patient registry. So we encourage um, people living with LGMD 2A or uh, parents if their children have, uh, are living with this to join our registry. Um, that way uh, we get to learn a little bit about what their journey's been like um, and that helps us better understand the disease. 
So, um, and that also allows us to then reach out to them when there are opportunities, such as clinical research opportunities. Um, we let the people in the registry know about it, so they, they benefit from it as well. So this next question is for both of you. Uh, in your time with C3, has there been any success story that stands out for you? Um, well, I'm, I'm happy to take one from the research side. Um, I, we've uh, been really interested in gene therapy. It's something that C3 started funding really early on, um, and we've so funded several projects as part of a gene therapy initiative. Um, and it's been great to see that there's now two companies that um, that have LGMD in their pipelines. Both of those programs are things that C3 supported really early on. So uh, when that research was just getting started, um, we were able to support it, um, help them get some of that initial data and de-risk, um, and they've been able to move that. So it's now um, being tested in animals and hopefully will progress towards clinical trials soon. So uh, I'll, I'll add the patient perspective. Um, um, which is one of the interesting things is that the diagnostic journey has gotten so much easier. Um, a saliva test um, can uh, let you know your, your gene mutations, um, and that's allowed more people to come into the the umbrella of C3. We've worked with other patient organizations who are focused on other forms of lung girdle muscular dystrophy for the patient voice to be really heard. We collaborated with them last fall um, uh, for an externally-led patient-focused drug development meeting with the FDA so that um, the FDA researchers, clinicians, therapeutic companies would understand what a meaningful uh, treatment or cure would be to those living with 2A. So I think helping advocate um, for patients uh, has also been an important um, place of progress for us. Right. Thank you both for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Thank you for the opportunity, Kim. It's my pleasure. In this segment of our show, Lisa Bacon will be telling us a little bit about the Fabry Support and Information Group. So what can you tell me about your work in Fabry Support? Well, um, my work actually started, I started volunteering for um, Fabry Support back in um, 2019, 2018. And I um, met Jack through some meetings and um, knew I wanted to um, help support um, more awareness of Fabre um, because my uh, family is affected by it and I'm as well and um, so started volunteering with with him and the organization um, by doing social media stuff and then started traveling to do patient meetings and uh, conferences and then um, as the need grew for them to have uh, more programs and have more help, um, they I was in the legal world at the, that time, and they asked me to come and uh, work for them as the program director. And so I did that in um, April of 2020. So I've been with them uh, for over three years now, and um, I help do a lot of different things. We kind of take a team approach where we learn kind of everything about 
the organization and we help out when we can, but I do a lot of traveling with patient meetings and conferences and then uh, fundraising and uh, different stuff like that. So how does the condition typically affect a person? Um, it, it, it can start in childhood um, because of the way that um, Fabry is a progressive disease. And so a lot of times you'll see um, children, you may not know exactly what it is, but they may have a lot of uh, different pains or burning in their hands and their feet. Um, some have headaches, um, uh, stomach issues. And so um, that's kind of how it, it generally starts. And then over time, and people progress different ways. It's just, you know, how our genetic is made up, our genetics is made up. Um, but it progresses into a lot of times heart failure and then kidney failure and uh, extreme pain crisis. And um, they're a lot of times considered um, having chronic pain. Um and uh, stomach issues uh, a lot of times will get worse. Um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I mean, it progresses further than that. Um, obviously, if you start having those types of symptoms, it's going to start affecting uh, your your feet, your extremities. So, um, so um, I know even hearing as well. So that being said, with the uh, range of symptoms, is there ever a risk of misdiagnosis with, the, with being mistaken There's, for something? Yes, lots and lots, um, especially women. Um, a lot of times women will be diagnosed with fibro, fibromyalgia um, just because they kind of group a lot of different things into that, you know, um, diagnosis uh, because of the pain and um, different things. But yeah, a lot of people are diagnosed with um, MS or um, just different things before they sometimes get their Fabry diagnosis. So do you know offhand about how many people are affected by Fabry? Um, it, it used to be um, where they thought it was one in 200,000. And now um, since there are eight states, uh, just recently added a couple more states, but um, now that there's some newborn screening in certain states, and the first one being Missouri, um, they estimate that it's one in 40,000 to 20,000 um, because of the different variants of Fabre, um, classic and non-classic. It could be one in 40,000 or one in 20,000. They're still working through some of those things. So... In your time providing support to patients and uh, in your own journey, has there been any success moment that stands out for you? Um, I, I believe um, some of our biggest successes, I think, are getting um, patients as well as physicians and industry to, to recognize that women have um, symptoms. And a lot of times... For a long time, women were considered carriers, and um, because there are certain X-linked genetic diseases that are just women are carriers and not don't have the symptoms, um, but there are now in uh, for the last probably five to six, maybe eight years, and they are recognizing that women do have the symptoms and 
and are starting to treat them earlier. So I, I feel like that's one of our big um, for our organization, we have a lot of different successes. We help bring in, you know, uh, industry to the um, be interested in Fabre, but women right now, you know, being recognized as uh, having symptoms, I think, is one of our uh, biggest successes lately. So, if you could send any message to the community about the need to keep pushing forward in advocacy and awareness, what would you say? Mm. I, I would just say that um, that there's hope. There's hope for a brighter future because is the more of us that continue to advocate for better health because the the medicines that we have now are are good and we're very thankful for them, and um, that they don't solve all the issues and they only help to keep the disease from progressing. They don't cure us. And so um, I would say that um, as we continue to advocate and to let our physicians know, our industry know that, um, you know, that yes, the medicine does help, but we want a cure. We want a better, brighter tomorrow because a lot of um, people are uh, tied to uh, um, therapies that are a lot of um, burden. So the burden of um, having good insurance and also the burden of, uh, you know, being tied to an infusion every two weeks and having to be, you know, in a certain place and, uh, you know, ever how many hours that is for that person to be able to get their infusion. Like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Handy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health or addiction, consider registering to the new REACT program launched by Downtown Windsor Community Collaborative. REACT is a 90-day program committed to understanding your story and supporting your journey to healthy and long-term healing. All sessions are online and completely free, running weekdays from 9 a.m. until noon. Visit reactwindsor.ca and instantly be connected to a safe and supportive community. That's reactwindsor.ca. Welcome back to HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Michelle Rubel and Jen Levy told us a little bit about C3, and we heard a little bit from Lisa Bacon about Fabry. This segment of our show, Matthew Taylor will be telling us a little bit about Dannon disease. So, can you tell me a bit about your work with Dannon disease? Sure. So I'm a medical researcher. I'm a uh, MD physician as well as a PhD researcher at the University of Colorado, and I do mostly genetic cardiac disease workup. And we became interested in Dannon disease about 15 years ago, really because of a, a very lovely and interesting family that was in our research study that ultimately uh, was found to have Dannon disease, and there was very little known about Dannon disease at the time. And so we published a, a small paper about their family and the 
because there was so little information, just became interested in the condition, started a patient uh, registry, and um, and have been doing gaming disease-related research and work uh, ever since then. So what are some of the most common impacts of the disease? Unfortunately, it's a pretty severe genetic cardiac disease. Um, we think that nearly everybody who has a genetic mutation uh, for Dana disease will probably develop it in their lifetime. It's a sex-linked disorder, so it affects males and females uh, differently, with males being more severely affected. And the biggest problems for males are in the areas of their heart disease, which is usually going to become life-threatening and can only really be fixed at the moment with a heart transplant. Uh, and then there's also some muscle weakness that the boys experience and some intellectual disabilities, which are usually mild, but are still um, you know, significantly impacting their lives. So that being said, uh, with the comorbidities and the array of symptoms you, you described there, is there ever a risk of misdiagnosis? Misdiagnosis meaning that the patient has Dan disease and it is not correctly diagnosed, um, yeah. so sort of a, a false negative. Yes, so hypertrophic heart disease where the heart wall thickens, that's the category of diseases that Dana disease fits into most of the time. And at least early in the disease, the hypertrophic disease that these boys and sometimes the girls have is indistinguishable or hard to distinguish from other forms of thickened heart disease or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we suspect that there are certainly some individuals who have Dana disease that are undiagnosed at the moment because providers are unfamiliar with this diagnosis and, and many are not routinely doing the type of testing that would get the diagnosis. So we suspect that there are patients out there that we would recognize pretty easily because this is what we do. But for the clinician that is not familiar with these ultra-rare disorders, um, there's probably a significant delay in diagnosis for some of these patients. Now, when you describe it as a rare disorder, do you know offhand about how many people are affected? Probably nobody knows offhand how many people are affected, unfortunately. Um, it's difficult to estimate this because there's not been population studies. Uh, we've been conducting a registry study for the past decade plus, and we only have about 120 patients and families in that registry. Uh, and there's probably another 50 or so families that we're aware of that have chosen not to enroll in the registry or haven't enrolled yet. And then there's a Facebook page that has about 400 members on it. Um, so those are all pretty small numbers out of the 7 billion plus people on planet Earth. Um, so we suspect this is a pretty rare condition. Um, estimates of this have been anywhere from 10,000 to maybe 25,000 patients, either in the U.S. alone or perhaps in the U.S. and Europe combined. Um, and that would include patients who are also undiagnosed, which might be a substantial proportion. But these are back-of-the-envelope calculation estimates that are uh, you know, based on, on pretty loose assumptions without the ability to know this for certain. Um, so uh, very rare indeed. So with the registry, how have you been reaching out to the population to let them know that this is available to them and if they have the symptoms, they can get some information. 
So unfortunately, there's not a way that we can reach out to patients with this diagnosis. That's just not uh, possible to do because uh, there doesn't exist a place where we could identify diagnosed patients nationally or globally. And of course, there are privacy laws that would prevent us from you know, searching through people's medical records without their permission. So patients come to us either through a website that we have that um, is uh, dandisease.org that uh, just basically talks about Dan and disease and provides some information for patients. Uh, on that webpage, there's also some information uh, about our study. And so I presume some patients uh, contact us through that way, or though we don't have an accurate way of knowing how many patients visit that website and choose not to contact us. Um, the Facebook page, um, patients are aware of us on that Facebook page, and so periodically patients contact us um, by hearing about us on that in that Facebook group. Uh, and then the company that is, or that is producing a potential therapy for this condition is aware of our efforts as well. But I suspect since we have predominantly U.S.-based, English-speaking-based patients and families who contacted us, we're probably missing a lot of individuals who are uh, less connected to the electronic world uh, in different parts of the world where English is not a first language or just far enough away that contacting someone in the U.S. just doesn't seem something that they choose to do. So I, I bet we're really not serving that population as well as we would like to. So to look at the converse side of things, in your time supporting patients, has there been any success that you've experienced as far as awareness of the condition? I would say that there has. These things go slower than you would like, uh, especially since you know getting stuff to move fast in our world often requires a lot of effort, energy, and unfortunately money. Um, so when I started doing this, um, the people I would talk to, whether they were patients or, or their treating providers, often, often these would be cardiologists, hadn't heard of this condition, knew almost nothing about it, and um, were really seeking the most basic of information, especially the the clinicians. Uh, in the past uh, decade or so, we and others have written about Dan and disease, described it better. We've proposed some management guidelines. The gene has been added to genetic testing panels for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And increasingly, when I uh, interact with providers, particularly cardiologists and neurologists, I don't usually get the I've never heard of this before. What is this? I often get the, you know, I knew a little bit about this. I've done some reading on this, and I just want to confirm some things. So I think the the knowledge that's out there, while it's far from complete when you're dealing with a rare disease, um, is better from essentially absent years ago. And I think that's just a reflection of everyone becoming more aware of these genetic conditions. The fact that genetic testing panels include this gene is also helping so that, you know, Providers can stumble onto the diagnosis, which is perfectly fine. They don't have to be thinking of it in advance as long as the test will give them the diagnosis. And then colleagues of ours who've done some nice work in uh, mouse models have come up with a proposed therapy, which has already been uh, tried in humans in one trial, and a second trial is starting. And so there's optimism for um, the fact that people are getting diagnosed a bit earlier, their providers are a bit smarter about the diagnosis and have more resources at their fingertips. Uh, the management of the disease is perhaps a little bit clearer than it was a few years ago, and there's a gene therapy trial. So for a rare orphan disease, that's actually pretty impressive given there hasn't been a lot of funding in this space to make all that happen. 
like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Oh, sure. My friends, in case I don't say it often enough, I have a great deal of respect for those parents and those family members who never give up on their child, regardless of the condition. Whether it be long hours of research into the night, establishing an international presence, just to say, I understand, for others out there, it takes an incredible amount of effort. The love and the devotion shown by these families, and even these support systems themselves, cannot be underestimated. For the fact is, in the end, we're all working towards the same thing, the best quality of life possible for the disability community. And yeah, it's time, it's energy, but in the end, you're creating hope and a better opportunity for a person with a disability. No one has the right to say, there is better potential for you, but you know, I just don't feel like doing it right now. I mean, sometimes I wonder what it is that keeps these people going, the strength and the determination just to build up others. I mean, finding answers for yourself is one thing. It's fine. It's great for you. These people go above and beyond. They take it a step further. They say, how can I strengthen you as you take these steps? And how can I learn and grow by the steps you've taken? Intriguing question, isn't it? This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.